Well, we pray with the words of the psalmist, that simple prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please do keep your Bibles open. The verses won't be on the screen uh, this morning or have it, uh, that chapter open on your, uh, on your apps. Well, we saw earlier, didn't we, that certain things provoke a reaction, whether it's Marmite or sliders and, and socks. I mean, that's a definite no. Come on. Things provoke a reaction, don't they? But far more seriously, our opening verse today tells us that the message of the cross of Jesus Christ provokes a reaction. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Well, by way of introduction, let me show you some graffiti from about 1,800 years ago. It was scribbled into some plaster in a room in Rome, and you can see the kind of the pencil version of it on the, on the other side of the screen. And it depicts a young man worshipping a crucified figure with a donkey's head. And the implication is clear. Mocking a follower of Jesus called Alexa Menos and deriding Christ as a donkey and dying an insulting death. Worship, as we've been doing this morning, or ridicule, praise, or mockery. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. And in our verses today, firstly, we find that God uses the message of the wisdom of the cross. After the Apostle Paul had left Corinth, the people in the church began to think that his message, that his ministry, that his methods weren't quite up to the mark. He wasn't an impressive personality, and he kept focusing on the cross of Christ, which seemed to them like an own goal. Why speak about weakness and defeat when the people in our city are looking for strength and power and victory? And so Paul responds to them to show how God uses this message of the wisdom and the way of the cross, of why the cross of, of Jesus is so central to the Christian faith of why Jesus' death isn't something to be hushed up, pushed under the car, brushed under the carpet, but rather something to be celebrated and proclaimed as at the heart of following Jesus. Read verse 19 onwards with me. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world for since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. 
In Paul's day, there were all kinds of wonderful techniques that were available to make any message more popular and acceptable, just as there are in our own day. Wisdom, legal reasoning, eloquence, philosophy. And when it talks about the wisdom of the world here, it's a reference to any worldview or philosophy or perspective that fails to take into account the living God. It's perspectives that proudly emphasize what humanity can do and achieve without God. And all of this happening in the city of Corinth had begun to shape the church there. People were being drawn to leaders and personalities who would give them what they wanted. Clever arguments, impressive oratory, a message that turned away from focusing on this embarrassment of the cross of Christ. And we saw last week some of the results of that, competing cliques, personalities being promoted, even in the church. And in all of this chapter, the Apostle Paul is, really what he's doing is he's diagnosing the dominant cultural values of his day. And by that, we mean that we mean answering questions such as these of any culture. Where do people place their trust? What is it that people want? What do people desire? Where do people place or look for their hope? In first century Corinth, Paul highlighted that his own people desired direct demonstrations of God's supernatural miraculous power. The Greeks, on the other hand, they sought wisdom shown in impressive speech, in rhetorical skill, in eloquence. That was what people wanted in Corinth in his day. And what does Paul give them in response? Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach Christ crucified, stumbling block, foolishness. Both the message and the method of the Christian faith has always seemed stupid. And it's hard for us to really appreciate just how stupid it seemed in the first century. I'm going to show this quote, which has, to be honest, quite a lot of complicated words in it. And if you understand all of them, um, Please let me know afterwards because there's a few that I need to check before the uh, 11.15. That would be very useful for me. But even if you don't understand all of it, you'll get the general sense. It's from a big book, uh, very, uh, a brilliant book, Biblical Critical Theory. So here we go. Have a listen to this. No amount of highfalutin rhetoric could hope to convey to a contemporary readership, that's us, the outrageousness to ancient ears of the idea of Christ crucified. The concept would be as oxymoronic as a boiling ice cube or a successful catastrophe. The preaching of the cross is a provocation to paradox, an incitement to search for cultural values in the place we think it would most unlike, be most unlikely to find them to find wisdom in the most foolish of places, to find power in the weakest. It's a call that only the humbled searcher will follow. 
Most remarkably, in these verses, Paul is making the claim that where people are looking for wisdom and power, they will only be truly found and satisfied in the cross of Christ. Seemingly the place of foolishness and weakness. Because the cross presents us with the most extraordinary upturning in history. It pitted the epitome of weakness against the epitome of strength. A bleeding, naked, brutalized, and dying victim. And it puts him next to the military and the might of the most powerful, the most wealthy, the most unstoppable empire the world had ever known up to that point. And weakness won. The kingdom of Jesus is an upside-down kingdom where victory comes not from taking life, but from giving it up. Of course, the cross looks like the height of foolishness to anyone who's self-obsessed, whose currency is wealth and fame and power, but to those who respond to the word of the cross with faith. Actually, they see it as evidence of God's transforming power, radically turning human desires upside down, transforming lives. Well, how do we apply all of this to ourselves then? Tim Keller, a famous pastor from the States who died this year, he always used to explain how the good news of Jesus confronts and completes and consoles the big story of any culture. So as we look at where our culture and, and people in our culture place their hope and trust, as we see what people want, we can see that desires are a misdirected longing for God's peace and his presence and his fullness. And those misdirected desires can only find satisfaction and hope and life in Christ Jesus. Now, if I'd been giving this, giving this sermon um, 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, I think I'd have talked about how the new atheists dominated our culture. But today, they've been somewhat moved on from, especially, perhaps surprisingly, by younger generations. Because the new atheists don't ha have answers that satisfy I read this week in uh, UCCF's uh, student movement, annu their annual review, and the interim executive director pointed this out, that the Russian-born satirist, author, and political commentator Konstantin Kissin now lives in the UK. And he describes the collapse in popularity of the new atheism championed by Richard Dawkins and others, especially amongst younger adults. And he said this, <clears throat> the reason the new atheism has lost its mojo is that it has no answers to the lack of meaning and purpose that our post-Christian societies are suffering from. What will fill that void? Religious people have their answer. Do the rest of us. Friends, the good news of Jesus tells us where to find what we've been looking for. And it tells us where to find what we have been looking for in the most unexpected place and person. And actually in doing so, telling us what we've truly 
been searching for. It turns out that the last shall be first. When we come to the cross, it turns out that the humble are lifted up. In sum, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple and deny themselves and take up their cross must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? In the first century, there were all kinds of Greco-Roman symbols and mythology that competed with the cross to provide a framework for understanding life. And people in the church had uncritically absorbed the ideals and the values of the world around them, their culture. Well, Paul wants to replace that with the way and the wisdom of the cross. And it's just the same today. In 21st century Nottingham, do you realize that you are being pre- we are being preached at every moment of every day? This is not the only sermon that you will hear this week. See what you make of this quote. All of us are immersed in a highly effective discipleship program offered by our culture Monday through to Saturday. In everything from our phones to Netflix to advertising and news items, we are being offered a discipleship program that invites us to a completely different way of life, mediated to us through a dazzling array of images, sounds, stories, and suggestions. In response, our church gatherings on Sundays must offer discipleship programs that are deeper, richer, and more compelling than those offered by the culture. Well, let me try and put all of this more simply. You may have seen the story of Johnny Anderson from a couple of years ago. Johnny Anderson, he's a tanker driver. And during the 2021 petrol crisis, remember that? The 2021 petrol crisis, Johnny Anderson, he noticed upon arrival at his destination that he had a line of traffic backed up behind him. He had 20 drivers who had followed him for miles in the hope of being able to fill up with petrol. Anyway, the drivers had a disappointing surprise when Mr. Anderson turned his tanker into the entrance of a building site because his tanker was not carrying petrol, but dry mortar mix. And that struck me as an illustration of the human condition. You see, we human beings, we are meant to be pursuing something. We're meant to be about something. We're meant to be fueled by something, to be worshipping something. We're wired for worship. We're designed for, to desire. And yet, tragically, as a human race, we have pursued the wrong objects of worship. We've misdirected our desires. Like those car drivers, we have followed and we have pursued tankers that, 
that we thought would satisfy us, would fuel us. But in the end, it turns out they offered nothing but dry dust, which disappoints us and leaves us thirsty. Because human beings weren't created for this. We were created to pursue the living God, to be worshippers of our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer. And we will only find true satisfaction for our desires when they're met in Christ. And so when we gather like we are doing today, when we gather for worship, we're turning off from our pursuit of the tankers of self and success. We're turning off from our pursuit of the tankers of consumerism and career, of popularity and progress. And instead, we're turning to pursue the living God who promises living water to satisfy us, to quench our thirst. And in fact, we find that all along, he has been the one pursuing us. And God uses the message of the cross And secondly, God, secondly, God chooses those who follow the way of the cross. If you lived in Corinth in the first century, then your status would have come from being known as wise or being in a powerful position or from being wealthy or from having the heritage of a good family or preferably all of those status symbols. If you live in Nottingham today, where does your status come from? Or perhaps it's from your employment status or your educational background or where you live or your abilities in the English language. However, if you are part of the church in Corinth then or if you're part of the church in Nottingham today, your status truly is found in none of those things. Have a look at verse 26. Verse 26, brothers and sisters... Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. And the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Paul is taking him on a trip down memory lane. And he reminds the Corinthians that when they became followers of Jesus, not many of them were high-powered, not many of them were rich, successful, the movers and the shakers, the popular, the influential. But God chose them. Did you see that? Just look at verse 27 and 28. Three times, God chose, God chose, God chose. He called and chose them regardless of their status in the world. The church gathered the weak and the shameful and the poor and demonstrated God's transforming favor in them. And so to us today. Tell me, how do you feel about your status in the world? 
You may be honored or humiliated in the eyes of the world. If, you're, if you are a follower of Jesus, then God has called and chosen you. Right throughout the Bible, right throughout the Bible, God chooses the most unlikely of people. And he has called and chosen you. Just let that sink in. And I do also want to say that we need to know that it says not many rather than not any. Because in churches, including our own, there are those who have been called and chosen by God who do have status in the eyes of the world. Selina Hastings was born into a privileged family in the 18th century. She was the Countess of Huntingdon. And yet she knew that her status was first and foremost grounded in her faith in Christ Jesus. The Countess of Huntington would go on to be a religious leader, playing a prominent role in revivals, establishing chapels, founding training colleges for leaders. Yes, she was able to use her influence, her wealth, to bless others greatly and advance the work of God. But that wasn't where her status and her worth lay. She knew that she had been called and chosen by God. And she remarked about these verses that we're looking at. She said, blessed be God. It does not say not any wise, not any influential, not any of noble birth. It says not many wise, not many influential, not many of noble birth. I owe my salvation to the letter M. Do you see the church has always gathered the celebrated in society and those who are cast off by society? And it puts us all on level ground, called and chosen, centered on Christ. And do you realize that there is no other gathering in which that happens? That is the truly radical biblical inclusivity of the church. The point is that the church is not a collection of the cream of society. In fact, it's part of God's strategy that the church isn't full of such people. It's God's deliberate plan to use weak people. Whereas human wisdom drives a wedge between people, God's wisdom unites a people of the cross. As David Garland said, the result of God's wisdom does seem quite outlandish. Gentiles respond to the gospel of a crucified Jewish Messiah, preached by a battered and unimpressive Jewish apostle, creating a community in which Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, male and female, stand together as equals before God. So let's apply this to ourselves by asking some questions of ourselves. How do you view Christians who are different from you? Maybe those who are less educated. Those for whom English isn't their first language. Those whose struggle with sin is different from yours. Those who don't have leadership gifts. Those who have a different skin color from you. 
Well, God has called and chosen us all and put us on level ground at the cross of Christ. And therefore, verse 30, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The devil will always try to do all he can to divide and divert the church from the cross of Christ. And things that can be shown off, things that can be admired, foster boasting and self-reliance. But when we're boasting about what Christ has done, then, then it's hard to be proud and defensive and divisive. I want to take you back to imagining being a Christian in the church in first century Corinth. You would be massively outnumbered in that city. And all around you were the symbols of Roman power. Inscriptions on the coins that you used. Emblems on the banners, flags proudly waving everywhere. All pressing down on you, yet tempting you to follow them. The Roman Empire had been around for hundreds of years. You wouldn't know it, but it still had hundreds of years left to run too. And following Jesus in the midst of that, surrounded with this weak and foolish message, you'd be starting to think that you had picked the losing side following Jesus. And today, well, I don't know how long the various systems that dominate the world at present will last for. I don't know how long Western secular liberalism has left to run. I don't know how long various communist regimes have left. I don't know how long Islamic militancy will dominate regions of the, regions of the world for. And all of these systems, all of these empires with their symbols, their power, their human wisdom, they might last for a few more years, they might last for a few more centuries. But I do know that the way and the wisdom of the cross of Christ will stand. The Christ people will stand. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. Our former senior pastor, Peter Lewis, recounts the following story in his book, The Lord's Prayer. Some years ago, I was asked to preach at the opening of a new church in Doncaster, because the numbers coming were too great to be accommodated in the church complex, the centre of Doncaster Museum was hired for the opening service. Doncaster was an important garrison town in the days of the Roman occupation of Britain, and the large and very fine museum there houses many relics of those days. The museum also has a large open area in the centre which is used for public meetings, as it was on this occasion. I still vividly remember coming to the front of the congregation to preach the sermon. And as I looked out on the scene around me, there, with the armor, the standards, and the weaponry of the Roman legions, and the signs of Roman pomp and glory, there they were, in glass cases. And here were the once despised Christians, the spiritual descendants of the martyrs of the arena, 
Here they were singing confidently the praises of our God and his Christ. Caesar, once everything, was now nothing. And the legions of the great Roman Empire, once the world's most formidable force, were dust in the earth. And their symbols, relics, in a museum. Dead figures of a dead past. But Jesus Christ was alive and powerfully at work in the world, gathering his people into an eternal kingdom and glory. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. Let's turn in prayer. Oh Lord, would you forgive our misdirected desires? Lord, would you forgive the ways we have wandered in our worship? And Lord, for anyone here today feeling disappointed with all that life has had to offer us, but ultimately has disappointed, oh Lord, would you turn us to the source of life, of hope, of trust, of satisfaction? Holy Spirit, surprise us by enabling us to find all that we're truly desiring in the cross of Christ. And Lord, help us to take in with wonder, with awe that you have called and chosen us. even us. Thank you, Lord, that in the cross and in Christ we see the world actually the right way up. Thank you for including us in your kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.